Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. We need to manage every donor relationship as if we're going to win the lottery and leave the organization tomorrow. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Instill. Today, I'm interviewing Clay Buck, founder of TCB Fundraising. With over 30 years of experience in all types of fundraising, Clay is an expert in the field of philanthropy and the power of individual giving. This episode starts off with a bang as we jump right into what's wrong with how we have historically been taught to fundraise. Oftentimes the mistakes, quote unquote, that we might be making in our fundraising are the things we're doing right. Just because a lot of old systems and practices and advice have not gone away. So in this episode, we are going to explore what relationship building with donors needs to actually look like. We talk about the importance of valuing every donor at every level for every gift and how that can transform how we do fundraising. We are going to meet you where you're at, and we understand that most fundraisers are overwhelmed with everything on their plate. Clay talks about that and also talks about the misconception that fundraisers must always be out in the field in order to be effective and the need to prioritize and recognize the contact management work that is essential to relationship management and fundraising success. I love that we start to talk about how to create a healthier culture of fundraising. So let's dive in so you can meet Clay. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Clay Buck. Clay, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you so much. I am so excited and thrilled to be here. We have so much to dig into and talk about, but let's start with you just giving everyone a little introduction to you and your work, and then we'll roll from there. I'm an independent consultant, fundraising consultant. I'm the founder of TCB Fundraising and the principal consultant, which is I focus on individual giving primarily at the low and the mid range of the donor pyramid. So, which means I do a whole lot of data analysis and systems work and copywriting and anything that relates to shops large and small, right, in those low and mid range donors. I've been in all types of fundraising. I've been a major gift officer and a chief development officer and, you know, you name it, and have been uh, consulting now for about four or five years. So that's me in a nutshell. Amazing. And I know that one of the things that we go back and forth around a lot on LinkedIn and in our personal conversations are some of the best practices, habits of individual giving, and also some of the barriers around strong individual giving programs or moves management. So why don't we start with What do you think are the biggest mistakes that nonprofits are making when it comes to how they handle their individual giving programs and starting to move 
folks up who have given to a crowdfunding campaign or peer-to-peer campaign, and they're starting to think about how to move them into a major gifts program, what are some of the biggest mistakes or misconceptions maybe that we have about that piece of the process? And first, if I could, Mallory, I'm not calling you out or picking on you. Um, Pick on me. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I'm becoming a softer and gentler person, I hope, as I careen past 50. And like, I want to talk about mistakes fundraisers make. I want to support every fundraiser in every situation that they're in, because I think we all make the decisions that we have to based on the resources we have, the challenges that we're met with, what our experience is and what we know. So I don't want to frame it as a mistake necessarily, because I don't want to be all finger pointy like you should do. Like, I don't want to should mm. all over people. So let, let's say the biggest missed opportunities, right? Something like that. Could I reframe my question? Because I'm so glad you said what you said. I wasn't thinking about it from mistakes from the perspective of like, I was thinking like, what do we misunderstand about this process that kind of trains fundraisers? Like there's so many things that it took me 10 years to realize, like I thought I was doing it the right way based on some things I had been taught about fundraising. And then I realized much later down the line that like there are actually these other ways of engaging in this part of the process that are more effective, that feel better to me as a fundraiser. And so not that it's a mistake that the fundraiser has created, but something that sort of in our sector, in our industry is leading fundraisers to- show up that way. I love that. I love, yeah. I think we are pressured to show up that way from leadership, our God bless them, our volunteer boards who don't know better, who this is how they see fundraising. So they guide the team into it. Necessity, any number of things to finally answer the question. I really do believe the biggest opportunity is the institutional valuing and prioritizing honoring and recognizing all donors at all levels with all gifts, that a major gift, quote unquote, is an institutional definition that we come up with. Every gift is a major gift to that donor. And therefore, the immense power that comes with and the immense opportunity that comes with making philanthropy accessible and available and viable for everyone at every level. I could go for 45 minutes just on this, but let me try to summarize it by saying that generosity is alive and well. People are giving at all levels and doing all kinds of things. I am not 100% convinced with this current trend and alarm bells that fewer households are giving philanthropically. I think the way we report has changed especially in tax law in the United States and who's itemizing and who isn't. And I think that's changed some of our reports. I believe and have for 30 plus years, because I've worked it for 30 plus years, that no matter how great our society gets, no matter what political or economic, whatever is in place, there will always be someone who needs and there will always be someone who wants to help. And these are intrinsic to human nature. They're intrinsic to what it means to be human. They are intrinsic to living in community and society. And I wish and pray and work for our sector 
valuing every gift and acknowledging that philanthropy is not just a wealth exchange and philanthropy and wealth are not synonyms. I mean, that's kind of the high level nutshell because underneath that is a whole lot of systems and operations and prioritization. But that simple concept of valuing every donor at every level for every gift, I think would transform how we do fundraising. Mm. Yeah, I really like that orientation. And I'm curious if that mindset is at the root of a development office or a small nonprofit with a single ED who's doing the development function, what changes about their operations? Like, what do you start to see in their operations or systems or way of being that demonstrate that they've adopted that mindset? I think the main thing is acknowledging that fundraising, it's two things. Number one, fundraising and philanthropy is not just a monetary exchange. And this is a very, very difficult mind balance to be in because I really, truly believe and have really, truly experienced that we have to be able to carry two thoughts simultaneously as fundraisers. Number one, it is a monetary exchange because I have a budgetary goal to hit and I have to be focused on hitting that budgetary goal because the mission depends upon it. If I don't raise the money, the mission doesn't happen. So yes, it has to be very linear, very directly focused on that monetary goal. But then secondly, we also simultaneously have to understand that that monetary goal is based on this very intangible, touchy-feely, fuzzy-wuzzy relationships in air quotes. We start to begin to realize the measurement of fundraising success isn't just about the development officer being out on the road all the time meeting with donors. If you're behind your desk, you're not raising money. Well, actually, no, because somebody's got to manage the data. Somebody's got to look at reports. Somebody's got to make sure that the online giving page is working. And that requires desk work and that requires infrastructure and process. So we have to value both. And I think when organizations really embrace a culture of philanthropy that values all gifts, all donors, all levels, inviting everyone who wants to be to be a part of the mission that we see an investment in infrastructure, process, and systems as much as we see in the face-to-face -face traditional major gift-building relationships focus. Hmm. I love what you said there. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is thinking about that piece around the desk work not being valued and when you first shared that with me in a LinkedIn back and forth, it was new information to me. I don't think oh, I wow. quite yeah. realized how devalued activities like that were and the mindset around the development professional always needing to be out in the field for folks to feel as though they were quote unquote fundraising. What's really interesting to me about this is when that's mixed with this relationship building ambiguity that so many of us have been taught. It's very interesting to me that an ambiguous meeting that does not talk about money between the development officer and the donor is seen as more concrete uh -huh. fundraising than uh -huh. fixing a yeah. donation page. <laughs> Correct. Right. I say this to my students. So I teach fundraising at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, a few other places as well. And one of my favorite ones to teach is, and I say this to my students all the time. So lecture one, right? Fundraising is about relationships. And we go into great detail about what that means. And then lecture two is fundraising is about money. 
And by lecture two, they're like, wait, what? You said it was about relationships. And then lecture three is fundraising is about relationships that yield money. So it's, <laughs> it's those two things coming together. And I tell them, you can be out raising money. You can be out raising money all day, every day, coming back into the office with a stack of checks, getting credit cards processed, all that. You can be out raising money every day. You're not fundraising. Oh, you're hitting your budget goals. Sure. Oh, you're paying for the programs and the mission. Sure. But you're not fundraising because you got to do it all again tomorrow and you got to do it all again next year. And conversely, and I'm sure you've known fundraisers like this. I certainly have. You can be out building relationships all day, every day and not raise a dime. That was me <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> Right. I don't just know that fundraiser. I was that fundraiser. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, right, right. So here, shocking maybe to some, but the more private one-on-one -on -one conversations I have with the fundraisers, the more people will agree with me on this, but will very rarely state it publicly. I've been in fundraising, as I said, since 1996, so 30 plus years. Countless face-to-face -face meetings with donors, one-to-one, -one, in restaurants, at events, you name it been there, done it, can't even remember them all. I can count on two hands the number of asks I have made in person, one-on-one -on -one with a donor. Because 95% of the time, I contacted you carrying the title, Director of Development, Chief Development Officer, whatever it may be, on behalf of a nonprofit. We talked about cases. You know, they know why we're meeting. They know what we're talking about. And 95% of the time, they will either meet me at the next meeting with the gift. They'll make it online. Somebody will call me and say, hey, call the organization and say, hey, so-and-so is transferring this stock, right? Because then I'm not praising myself or patting myself on the back there. I'm just saying when it's done well and done good, it's the donor making the decision. It's not us asking for it. Mm. But then again, and I've done it too, because I had to sit, hit a certain number of visits per month, or I had to just demonstrate, and I have been called into HR and written up for it. So well, we don't, you know, we don't know what you're doing. We don't see you out in the community doing the work. All right, fine, I'll schedule lunches. So you do, you schedule a breakfast and a coffee and a lunch and an afternoon and, you know, okay, fine, I'll go. But is that as lucrative as the two weeks that I spent cleaning up our database and confirming that the last gift was actually correct and putting that last gift in the direct mail piece and the email piece so that I was putting a customized ask in front of 5,000 donors and asking them very specifically to renew that gift, which resulted in six figures of donations. Like both of those are as value. And I would love to bust open this concept that if you're behind your desk, you're not fundraising. If you're crunching data, that's not fundraising. I'm up on the soapbox now. Our colleagues in advancement services, our colleagues in prospect research, our colleagues in marketing and donor comms, our colleagues in donor relations are told they aren't fundraisers because they don't have a dollar goal assigned to their work. And it is absolutely 100% categorically untrue. If we're lucky enough to work in shops that have one or all of those different types of roles in your shop, they are just as much a part of this work that we call fundraising as the front-facing gift officer is, right? Mm. I'm going to hold myself back from going down a rabbit hole here, but I agree with everything that you're saying. I've started to 
talk about this in terms of a culture of fundraising as opposed to a culture of philanthropy. And I think that sometimes there is that piece around the organization not recognizing the fundraising that's happening in those other departments. I also think sometimes there's a lot of discomfort in those departments being associated too closely with fundraising that I hear a lot from marketing and comms people, well, I'm not the fundraiser. And I think there is some like stigma around fundraising and our discomfort with money in our society that also creates some of those silos too. I'm curious what you think about that. I do think there is discomfort around money. I think a lot of fundraisers, especially fundraisers in very small shops that are relatively low or mid-range salaries. I tell the story all the time, my first real fundraising job Long story, I had worked in fundraising, but I didn't realize it was fundraising for like 10 years. Just <laughs> what you did. You know? I'm like, oh, this is actually a career and a profession and all that. I'm in Chicago having meetings with very powerful, very wealthy people at the top of the Hancock building in the, what was the Sears Tower then, that are, well, <laughs> a lot of them wound up in the White House a few years ago. I literally looked up and there was a news report about some meeting under the Obama administration and like literally everybody in the meeting because they were all Chicago people had been on a committee for an organization. I was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) But here's me making less than $30,000 a year wearing a clearance off the rack men's warehouse suit and shoes from Payless that I had to go into debt to look presentable Mm -hmm. enough to walk into the room. So yeah, there absolutely is fear and concern and all kinds of mixed up stuff about money. But it's that phrase, I'm not the fundraiser. And this is hard. It would require a lot of shift in thinking. It would require a lot of leadership and boards and CEOs and executive directors to come on board with it. But where we need to get to, again, go back to the idea, there will always be somebody in need. There will always be somebody who wants to help. Our missions solve a problem in society. Every nonprofit exists to solve some kind of problem. Our missions don't exist without the communities that we serve, whatever community that may be, whether you're an international charity and that's the global community, or whether you're a social service agency in a small town in a rural state. They exist because the community has said, this is something that's needed. And give me just a minute to go through this process, please because this is really how I see it. And let me use the state of Nevada where I am as kind of an example. In the Attorney General's Handbook for Nonprofits, it says in the state of Nevada as a nonprofit organization, the trustees hold the mission in trust for the good of the people of the state of Nevada, which is why we are required to have transparency, all of that. Our missions exist to serve our community. It is our responsibility. It is our obligation. It is a necessary part of who we are to invite, to include our communities in solving the problem. Not just the wealthy people in our community, not just the foundations and corporations, but everybody has the right to go, oh, I see this problem in my community as well, and I want to be a part of it. Our job is to facilitate that. So we hold our missions in trust, which then means fundraising isn't about revenue generating for the operations of the business. Fundraising is about 
including, inviting, welcoming in, and carrying that responsibility of saying, hey, there is this problem here. And in order to solve this problem, it's going to cost us X amount of dollars, our budget. And we're going to do the work and you are invited to join with us in this work. Fundraising isn't about being the fundraiser, meaning being the revenue generator. It is about that engagement of developing. And it's why we're called development, developing the relationships, developing the history, developing the organization. When a donor gives to a nonprofit, they're helping the organization grow. They're helping the organization fulfill the mission. Like all of this is interrelated. None of it is separate. None of it, it, when it's done well and in its pure form and too, too often, we go, oh, well, fundraising isn't programs. Fundraising isn't organizational. Fundraising isn't finance. You, fundraiser, you go out and get the money. The rest of us will do the business of the nonprofit, but you you go get the money. I can't go get the money unless I know what stories are happening, what programs are doing, how they're performing, how the problem is being solved. But we have to be somewhat liberal-minded about this, right? Because we have to report our numbers. But I really do think that those funders that have asked us, that have held us to in grants and proposals, you know, you name it, Really show your impact, show your number, show your metrics. What they were saying was, show us this work, show us the mission in action. It's just, as humans, we tend to get literal, and it's hard to balance that sort of vague stuff. But I think that was their intent. We just, as an industry, have so internalized it that we have all made it very literal and have pushed fundraising out to this revenue-generating place. Hmm. I should pause for a second, because that was a lot. <laughs> oh, I love everything that you said there. And you are hitting on this like tender intersection. And so I'm going to try Mm -hmm. to ask this question. So I deeply agree with everything that you said. And I think it busts open also the framework around sort of where does fundraising happen? Is it behind a desk at the computer doing the data? Is it walking into a major donor meeting? Because what I hear you saying is it's everything. It's anything that is inviting people in, making the organization and community accessible to do the work together. Anything that improves our ability to work side by side with donors of all types is fundraising. And not just with donors, but with just humans. And so to me, that really expands the list of activities that fall under fundraising, which I definitely agree with. And I'm trying to balance, I think, too, this mindset with the tactical advice, because it's reminding me of this other piece that you were talking about around the ambiguity that exists in these relationships. And I so appreciated what you shared about how many donors you've met with and how few of them you've had to ask specifically in that moment. And my guess is some fundraisers might hear that and it could almost make them like uneasy in terms of the, well, then how do you know if it's going to surprise you or if it's going to come in, not in response to something that you controlled in that moment, then it made me feel as a fundraiser, like I have no control. Like I'm just free falling in this environment where I keep doing these relationships and then the money comes in sometimes because I ask, but sometimes because of something else. 
And it made me feel now, I think, building my skills around sitting in ambiguity and focusing on deep connection and relationships and being more comfortable in that, in my body and my brain, what you're saying makes a lot more sense to me. But I think in my early fundraising years, it made me so uneasy to not have a checklist that could give me the answer around how I would hit my revenue goals. So can we talk about in terms of how you work with your clients or how you recommend, like what does purpose-driven donor relationships and management look like that hold that relationship and the financial needs and goals together. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. So let me acknowledge and appreciate everything that you're saying. And I am by no means saying and advocating that you shouldn't have an ask planned for each donor or just meet with people and the money will follow. Not at all. So go back to organizational budget, because I think it starts there. If we look at the organizational budget as the physical manifestation of the cost, the expense that it takes to solve this problem. The reason our organization exists is to solve this problem and it costs this. It costs this amount per year to do that. So let's articulate that. Let's talk about that. And that's where I get to. In all of this relationship, we are always open, direct about stories about the people of experiencing the problem, what we do to solve the problem and how much it costs. In very general terms, If a donor that either I meet with in person or that I send a letter to or an email to or that sees a social media post doesn't have a general idea of this is what they do, this is how they do it, and this is how much it costs to do it, then, you know, within one of the first interactions, then we failed. That is our story. Las Vegas, I use this example all the time because it makes people laugh because it's a funny phrase, right? Las Vegas is overrun with ravaging wombats. It's not really. Las Vegas, ravaging wombats, it's hilarious. Las Vegas is overrun with ravaging wombats. There are millions of wombats scattered throughout Vegas, like wrecking havoc, upsetting the natural tendency and getting in the way of gamblers. And in order to rid Las Vegas of ravaging wombats and rescue them and send them to a place back to Australia where they belong and can be healthy, it's going to cost us about a million dollars a year to get 500 wombats out of the city. And when we do that, we're going to help little Joey. Little Joey could not get to his school. Every time he walked out of the door, a group of ravaging wombats would stand in front of his street and wouldn't let him get to school. Joey is failing in life because of these ravaging wombats. Somewhere, these stories have to be told. This is what storytelling is about, right? And we go, oh, what is the story? Blah, 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 blah. And we do, and it's true, and we need all of those techniques and strategies. And absolutely, and fundamentally, We exist to solve a problem. The problem costs this much to solve. We're inviting you to be a part of it. Now that gets into, so Mallory, tell me, have you had any experience with wombats or 
you know, what's your back, right? You know, then we get into all that good relationship building stuff. Sure. But at some point, sometimes, you know, we hide behind it, right? Mm -hmm. Like like we get a little, I don't want to talk about that because they're, they're going to be afraid of asking. Listen, I hate asking. I'm always afraid to ask. And I think this is human, right? I don't want to bother people. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to offend them. The great philosopher whose advice we should heed, really, and take as real fundraising guidance, the philosophy of Pitbull. And if you know the song, then it will be stuck in your head for now. Maybe we can add a link to the show notes. But um... <laughs> My first Pitbull quote. I'm so excited. <laughs> Pitbull. Pitbull, right? Yeah. Ask for money and get advice. Ask for advice. Get money twice. <laughs> I mean, that's true in fundraising. It is 100% true because people in general are not offended by being asked. They're offended by being asked if you're the type of person that only ever asks. They're offended by being asked if you're the type of fundraiser who is just constantly coming with an ask and need. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not offended when they have a relationship with them. Think of your friends. Think of your closest friends. Sally Sue, the kids are nuts today. And I've got 8 million things to do. I'm so sorry. I know you go to the grocery store on Tuesdays. Would you mind, please, terribly picking up a gallon of milk for me and dropping it off? And so I was, of course not. And the same thing is true in fundraising, whether you're doing it online, whether you're doing it via email, whether you're doing it in person, whatever it may be. We're obsessed with donor retention. We're obsessed with donor retention. And yes, I agree. Totally agree. Donor retention in the sector is a problem. And we talk a lot about the stewardship techniques. And once you receive a gift, all the donor care and donor, all of that, but we're not soliciting our gifts with the idea that they'll be redeemed. Yeah, I totally agree. We're not saying this is an ongoing, always problem. Today, today, if we raise $5,000 in this campaign, we can get rid of 10 wombats. But tomorrow there's going to be 20 more. Yeah, I totally agree. And something I find myself saying a lot is being transactional does not equal talking about money. We think being transactional is talking just about money. Being transactional is only caring about money. Talking about money, talking about investing, those are critical pieces of our work. Absolutely. And they feel good when we genuinely care about more than the money. But if in our head, in our heart, we're like, I just want to figure out what I can get financially from this person, that is going to feel transactional. But I, for a very long time, thought, okay, don't be transactional. So don't talk about money. Bury the lead. Like all that stuff you were saying, don't talk about how much something will really cost because then they'll think you're going to ask and and all these things. And so I just, I so appreciate everything that you said. I also really appreciate you sharing how uncomfortable asking makes you feel. I share this a lot when I speak, but I, for 13 years, thought I was a bad fundraiser because I was uncomfortable asking for money. And I was sure that good fundraisers felt different. Can you talk to us a little bit about what do you do maybe the five minutes before you walk in the door? What do you do the day before in terms of the donor record? Like, What are some of your habits that help build your confidence and preparation when you are walking into an ask? Because I have a feeling folks could really benefit from hearing that. You know, I come from a prospect research data informed background. 
So my immediate reaction to that is I do as much possible research as I can. And I do research not to know what their wealth is or not to know what their capacity is, although that's helpful, but because I want to know as much about the person as I can. But see, I do this in my personal life too. So like, there's a great irony here because one of the greatest fears that I have as a person is embarrassing myself or getting something wrong with someone and saying the wrong thing to somebody. Because I, of course, am convinced that if I say the wrong thing to somebody, then I've ruined my first impressions. From then on, they'll never like me. I mean, I totally screwed up our first meeting. Totally screwed <laughs> up. Oh, my God. Wait, before we, if you want to share that story. But yeah. I share that feeling, worrying about getting something wrong or getting an identifying factor about someone wrong or misremembering something about someone's kids or something. That's actually very common for people with ADHD to hold that fear. And so like for me, I overcompensate in other ways with having probably not enough boundaries and how I show up for people because I'm like, I'm definitely going to miss your birthday and I'm definitely going to miss some text messages. And I sort of overcompensate in these other ways. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. And I know a lot of people who are listening have different neurodivergent brains that because our whole human and personhood is a part of our fundraising, it intersects with these moments. We cannot be fundraisers unless we bring our whole selves to it. Because we get into vulnerabilities, talking about money. We get into really ugly and difficult situations. Sometimes we're talking about people in the most painful, awful, worst situations of their lives. We're dealing with a lot. And this is also where I really jump on the soapbox about fundraiser mental health, fundraiser self-care, and managing fundraisers. Because it's very easy for leadership to say, you're just the revenue generator. Just go out there and meet with donors and get wealthy donors and blah, blah, blah. Without factoring whether you involve me or let me access programs or not, I still know what's happening. And I know people are dying, hungry, in terrible situations. And unless there is something really, 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 forgive me, wrong with you, there is no way that that doesn't affect you. And there is no way that as a fundraiser, no matter what it is, no matter what you're doing, no matter what area you're in, that serving the mission of need doesn't affect you in some way. And if we don't bring our full humanity into it, then I don't think we're doing the mission and the cause justice. I don't think we're doing the donors justice. And we certainly aren't doing the beneficiaries justice. So neurodivergent or neurotypical, it's just human vulnerability around these things. And of course, human vulnerability about not wanting to embarrass myself, not wanting to upset people. And then the power dynamics of money. Like if I mess this up, I'm going to mess up the money. If I mess up the money, I'm in trouble with my leadership and the beneficiaries don't get served. It's a double whammy. It's a lot. And I don't think our leadership recognizes that enough. And I don't think we accept that about ourselves enough. I'm on a tangent, but your question was about, right, knowing everything that I can possibly know. Not because I'm going to sit in a meeting and after discovery, I've found that you have this love of horses or whatever. And I'm going to go, so tell me about horses, right? Like, how do you know that? Like, like you know, isn't prospect <laughs> research creepy? Well, yeah, that is, you know, if I show up and go, hey, Mallory, so I know you've got $9 million in an investment account that's public. Like, yeah, that's weird. Like, don't do that. But Mallory, you know, I'd love to get to know you for a minute. What are you interested in and how are you connected to us? Even if I know, tell me again how you got connected with Ravaging Wombat Charities. 
whatever it may be, because look, everything has to be grounded in that mission. Everything has to be grounded in that mission. If we're diverging from having conversations about the mission, we're doing our job wrong and unethically, I'd argue. There's another thing. The building relationships is not about building relationships between the fundraiser and the donor. It is about building the relationship between the donor and the mission and the beneficiary, mm. period. That's what you're there for. You're just the conduit. Okay, so I want to double click on this and ask a tactical question here, because I think that probably has some ways that that materializes in donor records that in terms of the type of information that a fundraiser is sort of capturing in a meeting and then ultimately putting inside a donor record and what they should be prioritizing in terms of, you know, personal identifiers that are important for connection and research, but also ensuring that they're really capturing the alignment points between the person and the organization. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I'm thinking about how you do that in capturing visit notes and major gifts and news management mm-hmm. and all that. But I'm also thinking about how you do that at scale, annual fund, in direct mail, in digital, um, et, et, et cetera. The things that matter most are the things that connect the donor to the organization. Just like we ask programs to do and just like we do with mission and beneficiaries, let's capture the same stories from donors. I met with Mallory today. We had a terrific lunch. She prefers chicken. She's allergic to fish. And the reason why she connected to us is because as a kid, she was beat up by a wombat every day on her way to school. I don't know. Wombat. It's just a silly word, right? She was beat up by a wombat on her way to school every day. And she vowed at a young age that she never let that happen to anybody else, but went to college, got started her business and it drifted away from it. And then when she saw our ad on Facebook, reached out and asked to volunteer, whatever it may be. Because we need to manage every donor relationship as if we're going to win the lottery and leave the organization tomorrow. Because we want what we want is the person after us to be able to pick right up where we left off. And this happens all the time, all the time. And this is why there is so much turnover and so much change, because every new funder that comes in has to start from scratch. And I know it might feel, or it could have felt to some people, even with my last question, that that was like a very elementary question. But I will be honest to say that I have inherited donor records that were totally about the personal relationship between the fundraiser and the donor. And there were literally no connection points that I could really draw on other than saying it sounds like you and -and so-and-so had so much in common when it came to blank. I don't do that, but I do this. I'm like, I was like, I, I... (laughs) right, right, right. I inherited one that was a multi-million dollar, uh, multi-million dollar multi-year pledge. There was no gift agreement in place. There were no notes in the system. This was a very well-known person in the community that I was in. So there was a lot of knowledge. When I called and said, you know, so-and-so, as you know, so-and-so has left and I'm their replacement. I had been there for three months, four months. And their first words were, well, it took you long enough to call us because I had to spend four months getting caught up to figure out what was what and literally walked into the meeting going, I'm sorry, I don't have any notes. So please forgive me if I'm covering ground that's already been covered, but I would love just to get to know you, which they were very kind about, but they also expressed some frustrations like, okay, well, we've done this, you know? Yeah. So fundamentally, the relationship is not with us. The relationship is with the organization, with the beneficiary. But yeah, Mallory, I just impressed on me and I sort of feel the need to name this. 
despite the fact that it leads into some tricky, perhaps controversial waters. <laughs> and you smile as if to say, yes, bring it on. Or, bring it oh, on. Dear God, we're not, or, or, we're oh, not dear afraid God, of he, that here. He say, and are we all going to get in trouble? Um, With who? <laughs> and well, you know, and if I get in trouble for it, then I get in trouble for it. But I'll continue to say it and gladly have the discussion. Fundamentally, this is what both pure donor-centered fundraising and community-centered fundraising are saying. The divergence between the two, conflict between those two theories, is in the execution. Donor-centered fundraising was never, never about prioritizing wealth, donor dominance, etc. Same thing in community-centered fundraising. Community-centered fundraising is never, and what I've seen implemented there is, we do community-centered now, so we don't talk about our beneficiaries. We just list all of the accomplishments that we've done in the community and the statistics. That's not community-centered fundraising. I really think fundamentally, both of those, in fact, all theories of fundraising are trying to come to the same place, that donor, mission, beneficiary, all of this working together. Does the donor make a mission have it? No, no. But without their money, we can't do the mission. So in a way, yeah. But let's talk about that in our relationships. Let's talk about putting the donor on par with the program people that are out in the community, the programs people that are doing stuff. Let's tell the stories of our programs people to our donors. Hey, this is Jack. Jack is a wombat wrangler. Jack goes out there every day and puts himself on the line because any minute now he could be consumed by how adorable these darn wombats <laughs> are and lay on the ground and scratch their bellies and, you know, feed them food all day. And then we still have ravaging wombats. Jack is out there every day getting wombats and getting them to a safe environment. And he's doing that because you made this gift. So it's like you and Jack are out there together tickling wombats. Mm. Right. You know, so I was never formally trained in donor centric fundraising. And so I, I, is anybody? Might, I, I don't <laughs> know. Anybody? I guess, well, I guess, I guess what I mean is that I can't speak to sort of the history of the founding of the ideology, but I, I do see ultimately what has happened to the practices that are considered sure. donor centric and that labeling. Maybe one of the issues, and perhaps I'm wrong here, is that a, a, strategy or a theory or a methodology was rolled out without acknowledgement of power dynamics. And so it just sort of pretended that the relationship was like an objective relationship, as opposed to the fact that there are all of these layers of influence and persuasion and power and ownership and direction that are tied to money unless they are given with an increase in transparency and clarity around the fact that they do not come with those things. That like the money does not come with power. That the money is to serve this mission. It is allocated and decided upon by the community. And so what's really interesting to me about what you said, I agree that some of the strategies that fall under donor-centric fundraising are strated, are important human design strategies. Like I did this really interesting interview recently with a behavioral designer, and she said, we test how humans respond to certain things. Sometimes those tests give us an inconvenient truth about how humans respond to things. And there are some really inconvenient truths about 
donor behavior. The fact that people respond better when there's a 100% model in the email, or they respond better when they feel like they maybe have more direction around the impact that their money is going. Those are inconvenient human behavioral truths. So what I appreciate about what you're saying, and that you and I have had this conversation offline too, is like, okay, where are we throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of, I don't want community-centric fundraising organizations to lose all the human design elements that have once been referred to as donor-centric strategies. And I think they have to be like re-looked at in the context of understanding, because this goes to the piece that you and I have been talking about, which is that there's a conversation that happens between the fundraiser and the donor. And there's a whole conversation that is happening, but not being said out loud. And it's that conversation, the things we're not saying, the things we're not being transparent about, the things we're avoiding bringing into the conversation. That to me is what's created the issue. I completely agree. And forgive me, it's also the very literal-minded approach to tactics that when we try to be all logical and factual and non-human about it, that we lose the impact. And I know I know we're coming up on time here, but I feel like you and I could probably go on this for hours. Um, so, you know, shameless plug, happy to come back anytime. Um, but let, let's just let's just touch on gratitude. There are neuroscientific studies that explain why it's hard for us to express gratitude. And there's a number of reasons why. There's personal biases, right? We assume they know we're grateful. There is the access to vulnerability. In order to say thank you, I have to admit that I was less than and in need. And then there's the cultural conditioning to it. Tell Aunt Betsy you're grateful for the ugly sweater, you know. Mm. Well, I'm not. You told me not to lie, but now you're telling me to lie, right? So all of these biases come forward and a handwritten thank you note will raise more money and improve retention rate. Okay. 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 Right. I have arthritis in my hands. I am the only person that can do this here. I can't do a handwritten note. And we tend to get very literal minded on these things. So yeah. Okay. Studies showed that a handwritten note will improve retention rate. Okay. Does that mean that a mass produced letter that's personalized is going to raise less? Maybe. I don't know. Test it for your org, but implement any of these tactics with the humanity and the style of your organization. The intent is get it out of the transactional. Dear Mallory, thank you for your gift of $50. You can use this enclosed letter as a receipt for your taxes. Well, yeah. Okay. I know we're supposed to do that because of the IRS, but dear Mallory, thank you so much. Because of you, Jack got another day out in the field. We'll let him know that you're behind him, cheering him on with your support. It means so much. By the way, we received your 50 bucks. We'll put it to work right away. You can use this as a receipt if you need to, right? Let's bring the humanity back in as much as we can while still hitting our numbers and our metrics. And that's the hard part. That is the hard part. While still hitting the numbers and the metrics that we need to bring the humanity back and be balanced with this donor, I don't need to put an ask in front because I am confident in the conversation. I am confident with what they are. I am confident in what I have provided to them and that they know. This donor over here, no, I gotta put a I'm gonna have to tell them exactly what we need. And bring that humanity in and let's acknowledge how hard that is. Really, truly, because it does require that balance and that split focus and that 
And it requires a level of wellness in the fundraiser to be able to access that. Like we cannot be perform humanly if we aren't allowed to be our human selves. Mm-hmm. 100%. And that goes to, as it always does, that goes to leadership. Yeah. And how do we get that to boards? How do we get that to the CEOs and executive directors? The only way that I know to do it is to be a leader from, from where you are. Yeah. You know, continue to advocate for yourself, to continue to stand up for yourself, continue to add boundaries. I didn't do it. Good Lord. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff that I hear today, I'm like, you would never have said that to a donor. Yeah, we should have. My bosses then should have. But we learn, we grow. It's not a perfect answer, I know. But the main thing is same place where I started. If we can come to the belief that all giving is good, that all people want to be a part of things that do good. And if we can build our systems and our infrastructure and our approach to honoring the mission and inviting people who want to be a part of it to be a part of it, then I think we continue to move the needle towards success and to doing the important work that we all want to do. Perfect way to end this. All right, like usual, there are a lot of takeaways, but here are a few things I want to double click on. Number one, valuing and prioritizing every donor at all levels with all gifts is a critical aspect of any successful fundraising program. This means recognizing the importance of gifts of all sizes and honoring donors of all backgrounds and identities. Number two, recognizing the work of those in departments outside of the front-facing gift officer role, such as marketing and donor comms, in the fundraising process is really important to create an organizational culture that values all gifts, all donors, and all levels of involvement. Number three, Investing in infrastructure, processes, and systems is a key part of creating a successful individual giving program. Infrastructure includes things like databases and software, and the process involves setting up and maintaining ways of tracking, recognizing, and engaging donors, and the systems involve developing a consistent organizational approach to and culture of fundraising. Number four. I know we dropped a little bomb at the end there about community-centric versus donor-centric fundraising, so I do want to say more resources and conversations about this are coming. To me, and I feel like Clay and I are really aligned here, it comes down to intention versus impact, and we can't look at tools and tips without looking at them in the context of the power dynamics and systems in which they live. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Clay and our amazing sponsors in Still. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of this incredible mini series.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.